the beginning, the very beginning of the book of Revelation, we heard that the overall purpose of the book is for Christ to show His followers what's going to soon take place. Then, in Jesus' letters to the seven churches, He warned them that a time of testing is coming for them. The world will turn against them, and some of them will experience martyrdom because of their loyalty to Jesus. Now, chapters 4 and 5, where we are today, are actually the beginning, the start to this larger vision of the testing that's coming for Christ's servants. Everything from this point on is going to be part of of this vision given to John as he stands there in the heavenly throne room. Now, as wonderful as these chapters are, and they are wonderfully rich, I find it still easy to get lost here. There are the descriptions of the one on the throne being like Jasper. There's the rainbow around the throne, and then there's the lightning and thunder coming from it. I thought about John Binich this week. If you don't know this about John, he loves to study weather in great detail. Now, I had never thought that we would need weathermen in the kingdom, God forbid, because they're not always very good at what they do. Hopefully they'd be better there. I guess it's possible they'll still have work to do. There are also the creatures full of eyes that surround the throne. Now, I find it's easy to get stuck on some of these things, just trying to figure out what what does all this mean? You want to pick it apart, but then how does it go back together again? These chapters are obviously about worship, and we're going to return to that over and over this morning. But here's what I find fascinating. When God wishes to show John the things that are about to happen on earth. Where does he take him first? To heaven. There's something really vital here about the way that heaven and earth relate to each other. The way that events in heaven and earth relate. God wants to help people who are about to go through some very hard times and to help them see and understand what they're about to go through, he brings John to heaven. And as I think we'll see, it is not so that John can escape from the earth. It's so he can see more clearly. I recently came across someone quoting from the early pages of Mark Twain's book, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, This is a book that Scott and Zoe have read. Some of you, others of you may have read it quoting this. Huck is describing in the early pages the lady, the widow Douglas, who is his caretaker. And she would try to deter his mischievous behavior by telling him about the bad place. You don't want to go there, Huck. And she'd try to encourage his good behavior by telling him all about the good place. She tells Huck, all a body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. And then Huck tells us, his readers, well, I couldn't see no advantage in going where she was going. So I made up my mind I wouldn't try for it. (laughs) I, I hate to give Mark Twain much credit when it comes to religion, but there is at least something to his critique. Thankfully, though, Twain, I don't know that he saw this. His critique wasn't so much of the real heaven as it was of the popular views of heaven. There are harps, but there's a lot more to it. 
These chapters in Revelation are giving us a vision of what heaven is like, of how it relates to our world. And I want to show you two ways heaven relates to our world that we see in this passage. So first, heaven is the place where things happen first. Heaven is the place where things happen first. So this takes some explaining. When John enters heaven, it's not as if he's escaping from the earth. Heaven turns out to resemble earth, though we're probably going to need to learn to put it the other way around. Heaven turns out, earth turns out to resemble heaven. There are thrones of judgment, just like on earth. There are precious jewels, people wearing robes and crowns. Now, some of this might be strange to us, but it wouldn't be to most people through most of history. There's the stormy weather, lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. There's a sea. The living creatures around the throne are without a doubt meant to represent the entire animal creation. The lion being king of the wild beast. The ox, the leader of tamed animals. The eagle, the king of the birds. And then, of course, there's the human alongside them. This isn't meant to say that heaven and earth are the same. But clearly they're similar. The difference lies in that earth has been enhanced in heaven. When John enters heaven, he sees the created order refreshed, the whole creation focused on the reign of its creator. The sea, for instance. Throughout the Bible, it is a symbol for dark and dangerous forces, but in heaven, the sea is pacified. It looks like crystal. Lions, oxen, humans, and eagles, they aren't all known for working together, are they? But here they unite their voices in this relentless harmony. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 mysterious elder figures, have, they echo them with, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Heavenly worship turns out to be not a retreat from the world, but an entry into the center of the world. There's also a progression in John's vision. And this, in particular, is easy for us to miss. The movement in the entire book of Revelation is from heaven to earth. Heaven is the place of ultimate reality, and what's true in heaven must become true on earth. This is what's going to happen at the conclusion of Revelation. Heaven's going to descend. Earth, as I said earlier, will become heavenized, 2.0. But we see a miniature of this movement here. So in chapter 5, John sees a scroll in the right hand of God, but there's no one to open it. Then suddenly, the Lamb's arrival is announced. John is weeping because the scroll contains God's plan to make all things new. And if there's no one to open it, God's plans have stalled. So John is weeping, but an elder says, the Lamb has conquered. He actually says the lion has conquered, and then John sees to turn, and turns to see a lamb, which is an amazing play. What's going on here? The lion has conquered, but the lion has conquered as a lamb. Here's what's happening when John sees the lamb. John is witnessing Jesus' ascension from the perspective of heaven. 
Do you remember? The disciples saw Jesus disappear with the clouds in his ascension. Do you remember this? John is seeing the slain lamb as he appears in heaven. Now, having been slain and having risen from the dead, he can open the scroll. God's plans have not stalled. They will move ahead. Now, there are a lot of pieces of the biblical story we've got to put together here. This is hard work. Why can't God open the scroll? Surely God is powerful enough. That's not the problem. God can't open the scroll because God has entrusted the world to his image bearers, to human beings. And even though human beings have dealt wrongly with God's creation, even though we've messed it up again and again, God hasn't moved on to plan B. Instead, he sent Jesus as the faithful human. Jesus lived and died as a true Adam, a true human being. Jesus conquers death. And now, a human comes and opens the scroll. He has opened the way for God's plans to move ahead. Now, after the Lamb takes the scroll, the heavenly chorus sings a brand new song. One they haven't sung before, one they could only sing once the Lamb had arrived. Do you see what's happening? John is witnessing a drama, a sequence of events, even in heaven. This is a surprising thing to us about heaven. It isn't necessarily the place where the future has always already happened, as if heaven is this static place where the songs can get old, like a, a jukebox that just cycles around on the same song over and over. Instead, heaven is the place where the future happens first, this sounds strange, but it's going to explain other places in Revelation. Later, we're going to learn that the archangel Michael defeats Satan in heaven and casts him down. But the saints must still defeat Satan on earth through their own patient endurance, through embodying the lamb and the resistance to Satan. Then the bride of the new city, the new Jerusalem, is prepared in heaven for her husband until she descends from heaven to earth. This is the movement throughout the book. Things happen first in heaven, then they happen on earth. So it's the same here. John is given another still future vision when the praise that erupts toward the Lamb moves from heaven to swallow up the earth. So the entire creation becomes this theater of praise and every creature fulfills its created intent. Did you listen again to the end of chapter 5? Things have then moved from heaven to earth. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, says John, and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. What does all this amount to? Or, to ask it another way, how does it change us to believe that heaven is the place where things happen first? That it isn't God's escape hatch from the world? Heaven is actually an entry into the center of our world. How would we re-educate Huck Finn and make him want to go to the good place. 
We have to buy in that heaven isn't just a, this far off harp convention in the sky. Heaven actually is right here, close beside us, intersecting with our ordinary reality. It's not so much like a door that opens high, high up in the sky far away. It's more like a door that opens right in front of us where we didn't see one before. Suddenly there's an opening that leads into a different world. An invitation to come up and to see what's going on. How God is causing heaven to come to earth. If you'll allow me one more literary analogy. In C.S. Lewis's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia, there are four young children who are shocked to discover that this wardrobe in an old home actually leads into another world. A world that is both like and unlike their world. A world that makes them brave. A world that increases their love and their joy, but then sends them back into their own world with renewed purpose and strength. For us, the Holy Spirit and worship are the wardrobe. This is why worship will always be the most central part of who we are as Church of the Lamb. Because in worship, we participate in the life of heaven now as a foretaste of the day that heaven comes to earth. God's work in our own lives now is a piece of heaven that is swallowing up the earth. This means that when we come here and then we finish up our worship, we don't leave to return to the real world. We come here to actually enter more fully into the center of the world, to see how things really are, how they really should be and will be. Just like John, we need help understanding what's going on in our world, what's going on in our lives. How God is working in the midst of evil and darkness. And worship is the place we come to discover this. We leave empowered by the Spirit with a fresh vision of God to work and pray for heaven to come on earth. So how does heaven relate to our world? Heaven is the place where things happen first. And they will happen here. Second, Heaven is also a council chamber. It's a council chamber. So clearly, heaven is a temple, right? It's a place of worship. The, the 24 elders appear as priests. They're dressed in white, aren't they? And they're worshiping God, relating to God. This is a temple, and they are priests. But a place with thrones is not just a temple. There are other things that happen in a place that has thrones. It is also a courtroom. It's a place where judgments are made. This is what would have happened in the ancient world where there were kings. People would have come in there to receive judgments, edicts from the king. Now this is going to be a tricky part of Revelation as we move forward in it. Revelation has often been one of those books that stirred up political controversy. So people might ask, what nation might the beast or the harlot be in our day? In that day it was Rome, in that day it was Babylon. What, day is, what nation is it now? A lot of this is guesswork. But there's one claim here that we cannot ignore. This claim is that worship and politics cannot be as neatly separated as we would sometimes like them to be. It cannot be. 
that how a people worships will inform how judgments are made in their community and in their society and how those judgments are carried out. It will inform how laws are created that either protect life and encourage it or hamper it, even destroy it. We cannot neatly separate out worship from from politics. Revelation is going to challenge us to let all our ideologies, our, our approaches to politics, to be shaped by the heavenly temple, which is also a courtroom. Now, what I want to key in on this morning is that this courtroom has not only one throne, but many thrones. Now, clearly, God and the Lamb hold the highest thrones. They are the only ones who are worshipped in this courtroom and in this temple. They are the only judges who are held high. But they share their work of judgment. This is why the creatures are full of eyes all around. Did you know eyes are organs of judgment? And so the living creatures, like Jesus, they oversee, they survey and watch the world. They're the watchers over His creation, and they investigate and report back to Him the things that are going on. But those creatures, the four living creatures with the eyes all around, they don't actually have thrones. The thrones are currently occupied by elders or ancient ones, but we're not actually told who they are. Who are they? The ancient ones here are heavenly creatures. We know from the Old Testament that God is surrounded by a heavenly court, don't we? But here, these elders are going to cast their crowns before their throne. And this isn't just an act of worship, it's actually a resignation. Why are they resigning their thrones? The reason is that once the Lamb has conquered, He opens the way for humanity to fulfill their purpose as God's image bearers. Humans are the ones who have been called to reign with God over His creation. And so when heaven and earth are made one, the rightful people for those thrones are humans. So the ancient ones begin to cast their crowns to make way, to make room for humanity. Still, there's a point being made here that real authority actually enables one to share authority. So God, in His enthronement, makes space for other thrones. God's sheer sovereignty is a sheer sovereign generosity. It's a sovereignty so infinite it can be shared without being diminished. Isn't this utterly amazing? God is not insecure in His own rule, so He is able to invite others to share it with Him. Now, how do God's people rule over the creation? How do they rule in the world? The saints reign in Revelation through faithful, courageous witness to Jesus first. Jesus is the lion who conquers by becoming the Lamb. And throughout Revelation, He is challenging His people to have a heavenly perspective in that they can endure their sufferings as a Lamb with Him. They can patiently endure as He did, as He died on the cross and suffered. But finally, 
There's this other way that his people rule. It's the most surprising way. It's through song. This is what neither Widow Douglas nor Huck Finn nor Mark Twain quite understood. I'm not sure that we understand it all the time either. All revolutions have songs attached to them. One of the songs of the American Revolution went like this. Let tyrants shake their iron rod and slavery clank her galling chains. We fear them not. We trust in God. New England's God forever reigns. You could find songs for every major revolution through history. You can even find ones for the sexual revolution that has happened in our own day. Song is the way God has given us to dig up and express our deepest longings. Its power can be used for good or ill, and this makes it all the more important that we learn to sing aright. This is why God brings John to heaven to show him what's going to happen on earth, because what happens in heaven must happen on earth. And because we as God's image bearers are meant to manifest heaven on earth, We have to learn heaven's songs now. And we have to sing them now as we endure patiently the sufferings that come into our lives. Worship turns out to be not a retreat from the challenges we face in life. Not at all. Rather, worship helps us see our challenges, our earthly challenges, in light of God. And and to see what must take place. This is how the passage begins. Come up to see what must take place. To see the things that must take place in our world. And to see what it all means. To be prepared for faithful witness in our lives. We need the perspective and the song of a heavenly sanctuary. Because heaven is the place where the future happens first. It is the place from which the future comes. And this is one of the ways it comes as we worship and as we sing, the revolution begins. It is stirred in our hearts so that we can go out and we can pray and worship knowing that the revolution is coming. That heaven is not just a one-way highway. It is coming here. And our prayers are there. And God is listening. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.